You're listening to the Bootstrap SaaS Operator, the podcast where we interview founders who are actually in the trenches. We talk about the transparent journey of how they built their SaaS companies, how they grow them, and what they would do differently if they would do it all over. Hey folks, with us today, Brennan from Right Message. Brennan, super happy to have you on. Yeah, thanks, Nicholas, for having me. So let's start with the most important thing. What problem does Right Message solve for its users? So what we do is plain and simple. We make it easy for companies to better understand and segment their audience and then do something meaningful with that. Usually change up pricing pages, sales pages, show better option forms, show better you know, call to actions, that kind of thing. Who's the typical buyer for that? So our... Our best customer, to be honest, is software companies, other fellow SaaS companies, um, people that have different stages of the customer journey where you're kind of in the awareness stage all the way down to like really great customer. Um, we, we do have a good amount of like e-commerce companies and kind of these big, very profitable solo creator types um, who are using us also. But software companies are by far the people who get the most value out of us. Interesting. And then I would love to dig into that immediately because you, you said that you have like the, the most category, meaning like the, the sales company who are sales companies who are like the, the biggest chunk of the customer base. Do you focus everything on that with like the Pareto principle in mind, basically? Or how do you, as like the founder, navigate having the main chunk in one category, then also, but then also other verticals as customers? So that's kind of, I like that question because that's literally what we do as a product. So one thing that we do is if you're on our website and we know you're a SaaS, um, you're going to see social proof of just software companies that use us. You're going to see language that is styled into SaaS. Whereas if you're, say, in the uh, creator slash digital product uh, realm, you're going to see logos of companies we've helped there and so on. So we, we do a lot with trying to kind of dynamically niche our website, depending on who you are. Um, I think one thing that we have been struggling with, or I've been struggling with personally as the founder of the company, and the leader, is my world, my background before this was very heavily in that kind of creator space. So a lot of the people who follow me, um, a lot of the people on my personal newsletter, they're all kind of these creator types who a lot of them do benefit from right message, but we're kind of trying to go increasingly more upmarket and going towards uh, companies that have like marketing teams rather than, uh, you know, a solo creator who's selling courses or something like that. So there's been that kind of weird interplay where I'm, I, my, my natural advantage is I have a good amount of people on my personal email list and so on who fit squarely into one of those categories. They're just not the best category for, for right message we're finding. And is, is that basically strategically just to get the ARPA bigger so that you can have, first of all, like, of course, like more money collected, but also like more things you can do on the marketing front or what, why do you push there strategically? Well, it's because I think we're, we're increasingly discovering that the people who financially do the best with us are the kind who would do really well with like A-B testing software. And for A-B testing software to perform, you need to have a really dialed in funnel. You need to have decent enough volume. And if you've got like five people a month going to your website, you're not going to get an ROI. And we're kind of, we're, we're increasingly realizing the same thing. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of creators might be selling a kind of a, an expensive product where 
the the math just doesn't work as well as if you're selling a uh, you know say a subscription product that has a LTV of like three thousand four thousand dollars or something like that. Um, then the performance enhancements that website personalization deliver make it really really worth it. So we're we are an optimization layer. Like A/B testing is an optimization layer, um, and because of that, we want to go kind of towards more mature clients who. Um, already have their funnel kind of, they already understand the equation. They just want to kind of multiply different, different bits of it. So for a funnel listening who might be interesting, interested in doing that, how, how much traffic do you roughly need on like a landing page so that right, right message makes sense? Yeah, I mean, so to get statistical significance, because we do include A-B testing. So think of us a bit like in order to best describe, because I, I, I'm talking to other, a lot of software companies, right, as our, as our main buyer. And the best description I've come up with lately is imagine something like Optimizely uh, that can do A-B testing and website personalization, but it can pull data directly out of your email platform or CRM, which you can't do with Optimizely. You need to then pay for segment on top of Optimizely. And it also does lead generation. So now it's like three of these tools for a fraction of the price of Optimizely, right? So that's kind of how I've been um, just describing it to potential buyers but i think like in in terms of the amount needed funny enough like we've had we have a few agencies that use us and their thing is like well if you can get us one new lead by making the featured case study more specific to somebody and then they're like oh i'm going to stay on this website i see language that resonates with them i'm going i'm going to fill out the contact form they might have lower volume but the value of a lead is so high because they're selling say custom you know uh, development engagements, kind of like what, what you were saying you do, um, it's worthwhile for them. So I think it ultimately depends on things like what is the value per lead? What is the value per conversion? Um, and then just doing the math there. If you need to hire the right developers and ship fast, then React Squad is for you. A boutique agency that specializes in React and only works with fast growth startups. Get a 14-day risk-free trial and a transparent price of $95 per hour. Visit reactsquad.io to learn more. Yeah, and then switching gears a bit from the product perspective to like the company building side. So you started roughly six years ago. How did you initially get the company off the ground? So funny enough, I was doing, um, I was doing a lot of what Right Message does with, as individual consulting. So companies would hire me and I'd come in and kind of write a lot of JavaScript code and do it all for them. Um, and then I, I built a course uh, on email marketing and included some source code, like JavaScript code as a bonus. And the average buyer of that course is a marketer. So giving, giving a marketer like a zip file of JavaScript code is useless for most marketers. Um, so those two things kind of were happening and, and people were really interested in this kind of website personalization thing and being able to pull in data from your email platform and changing up a sales page or something. Um, so then one of our, one of my consulting clients, um, Anker at this, who was then the CEO of Teachable reached out and said, can I throw money at you and you make this like a real thing instead of just being a little side thing? Um, so him and a few others, uh, we did raise, I know this is a bootstrapping trick for this podcast, but we did raise some money from friends, really, who were in the industry, people like Teachable, uh, ConvertKit, uh, Lead Pages, and others that I knew the founders and we wanted to integrate with them. And I figured, well, if they invested in us, they're more likely to then 
really push us and you know we can integrate well and all that kind of stuff. Um, so we raised some money. We raised $600,000. We built the wrong product <laughs> with that money. We hired... Uh, t- uh, so I had a co-founder at the time. It was me and him. He was a technical co-founder. I was the marketing slash business co-founder. We hired a marketer. We hired another developer. We eventually then hired another developer. We basically burned through that money in about a year and a half, maybe two years. Um, and at that point, we, we realized like we had built a great team. We built a great product, but our MRR wasn't offsetting our burn, you know, that, that quickly. So uh, my uh, partner uh, at the time, then Shai and I decided, let's just go back to just him and I. We had enough in MRR that we could survive off that. So there wouldn't be any of that kind of pressure there. And we could then just operate as bootstrappers. So that's what we've been doing ever since. And funny enough, actually, a few months ago, I bought him out. And now I'm really the only owner of the company. Um, and so now I've been kind of uh, heading it on my own and stuff. But it's been, a, it's been a very interesting ride. The good thing is now we finally, I think, have the right product. Uh, the downside is we don't have all that fuel in the tank from uh, raising that money to uh, fire all the cylinders and everything. If you say you built the wrong product in the beginning, was there like a, a basically a misconception on what pain point you were solving, or why did you initially go in the wrong direction? Okay, so there, there's two. I think I have two answers for this. The first is that we really wanted to operate as the kind of the the. T- I mean, we were both. I'm an engineer, but I'm I was kind of the business founder, and and obviously my former partner, he was an engineer too. We both like the idea of people just showing up at the website, setting up for a trial and paying us directly. We didn't want to do sales. We didn't want to talk. We just wanted to like just people would show up and buy. Um, and the problem there, I think, was that we had such a, uh, we had, we had such a, not, I don't know if difficult is the right word, but like a, a product that required you to think of like the strategy up front and like put together a lot of pieces and stuff that it didn't really work well for that kind of lower touch model. Um, it's the same reason why generally speaking, like with optimizely, you're going to work with like consultants or you're going to have sales calls and a bunch of them and that kind of thing. Because for the kind of things needed to do to use right message, right, there needs to be strategic input. It's not as simple as just signing up and like going. Um, so that was one thing. The other that we quickly learned was that in order to do website personalization, which was our kind of our core value prop that we, we did you need to have segment data. So if you want to say, I'm going to show a case study or a headline or whatever, if you're in finance and a different one, if you're in software, you need to know, is this person in finance or are they in, are they in software? And, and the problem is we built this really great technology, but pe- most people we talked to didn't have that level of segmentation data that we needed to trigger these changes. So we ended up needing to build microserving tools and stuff into our product where you could say, hey, which one of these are you? Oh, I'm in software. And then now from then on out, their ex- entire experience is about software. Um, so that didn't exist early on. And um, we realized just firsthand how few people that we were trying to sell to actually had any segment data. They had like a CRM or an email list of hundreds of thousands of people, but it would basically just be email addresses and names. They wouldn't have details about who these people were that they could then use to personalize their website. Makes sense. And then I would, if, if you're open to share, because those things are always like, of course, very personal. 
why did you make the decision to buy out your partner? Because I feel like the it doesn't even need to be co-founder co-founder conflict, but basically just wanting different things in life between shareholders in a company is like a very how to navigate thing. So how did you make the the decision to do that? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think um, we 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 both had known for a while that we were kind of in a way getting in each other's way, and that he wanted one direction of the company, I wanted a different direction, and that kind of led to stagnation for a while, which wasn't helping our revenue charts, it wasn't helping our customers or anything like that. So I, we we were kind of faced with well, we have three options: either we try to sell the company, which at the time our revenue was declining month over month, so that comes really hard to sell. We could either just shut it down um, and just say, sorry, everyone, we're, we're closing shop. Or one of us could just buy out the other um, and really take charge and, and go in the direction that he wants to go in. So that's, that's the one we ended up doing, um, which is hard, I mean, for me, because obviously I had to fundraise on my own to buy out his equity. Um, I ended up using my own personal savings, which means I'm even more now invested in it than ever before. Um, but I think it was the right move to make because had we sold, we wouldn't have we we wouldn't have made much at all. Um, had we shut it down, there there are a lot of customers who really love our product and get so much value out of it, and they keep paying us, so that wouldn't help them. And uh, yeah, I just wanted I knew that if I could run it the way I wanted to, that I could get it where it needed to be. I think so. Yeah. How do you manage the extra pressure you have right now? Because you said you put yeah. your savings into it and being a founder has a lot of emotional pressure anyway. So tell us a bit about like, the emotional part of the situation right now. Yeah. Um, to be honest, I don't know if I fully consciously thought through enough about how it all affects me. That makes sense. Um, I just know that right now I kind of, again, this is only a few months ago, I inherited the thing, which meant he used to do development because when we kind of scaled back to just him and I, he was developing, I was, I was selling in during the marketing site and things like that. Um, so now I'm doing it all. Um, fortunately, I'm a coder, so I can kind of, like I had to get familiar with the code base and all that kind of stuff. So I've been working on that, but I actually kind of really, to be honest, enjoy it where I'm spending about half my week on the code and the other half doing sales calls and things like that. So it gives me a really nice, because before, I'd be doing the sales calls and trying to like communicate to him what I thought the, all this feedback I was getting had to do with making the product better. And now it's like, there's no friction, right? It's just like, I'm yep. the same person. Obviously I know that's not going to continue to scale with us right now where I don't mind sharing the numbers. We're hovering at about 20,000 a month in MRR. So we're not like new, but we're not like a runaway success. Um, but for effectively a one man show at the minute, um, I have a few contractors that I pull in ne as needed, but it, it's it's profitable enough. Like I'm not like looking at like a burn chart of like we're going to fail after X months. Yeah. Um, and now we're starting to grow again month over month, which is really great to see because we're getting this renewed attention on it. We've been shipping like crazy. We've started to one of the things I'm okay with is getting on these sales calls. So we've been I've been doing a lot of these and trying to figure out how do I go about. Uh, doing like a sales demo and and that kind of thing. So I've learned a lot in the process. And again, I've been, like you mentioned, I've been doing this six years now. So you'd think I'd be a lot further along at this point, but we just had a few years of 
effectively stagnation after I think the high of like, we had a team, we had all this momentum and excitement, and then it kind of like ran out of money and we had to kind of start from scratch, but it wasn't a new from scratch. It wasn't a new company. Now, in retrospect, that was a bit demoralizing, I think. It kind of demoralized both of us. So we just kind of let things continue on. Um, but now I kind of feel like it's because I know I'm the sole decision maker at this point. I'm not needing to like negotiate whether I can, we should do this or not. Um, there's just a lot of renewed, I think, excitement going into the product, which I'm excited about. So. Do you feel like taking the money early on was the, yeah, basically like the right decision? So would you do it all over the same or would you know in retrospect, of course, like hindsight is 2020, but would you do it all over? Would you hire like a smaller team or like what would you do differently for the people who are like in this not so fun economic situation right now overall in tech, like for those who like are in the situation of thinking or having the opportunity to maybe get like 50, 100, 200K to, to kick it off, even though they want to go bootstrap long-term, like how would you manage that if you would do it all over? I mean, I think there's a few different models. Like I like the, there's a, I don't even know what you call them, but tiny seed who they yeah. kind of do like, like bootstrap or friendly capital in a way. Yeah. It's like a hundred thousand they give you or something. Yeah. And their whole thing is like, we give you the, the personal runway you need for a year. So you're not worried about like quitting your day job and then like needing to get revenue up ASAP so you can afford it. Um, so I think like in that case, it might be okay. The, the only hard thing there is like, oftentimes if you get investors, they're going to want you to actually really grow the thing. <laughs> um, which if you're kind of operating like a bootstrapper, you probably have a longer time horizon and, and more humble growth ambitions. Um, so That's why I like like Tiny Seed as a model because their whole thing is like, look, all we want is just for you to be able to give yourself a year where you're not feeling the pressure of needing to build up and like revenue out of the gate. So I think like that would have been a better. Now, I wouldn't have needed to do that because back then I, I still had another business selling courses and stuff that was making me a good enough money and I could have done both. I, I didn't have a day job. But I think like if you have a day job and you, and you just don't have the energy or the time to like properly build a product, Something like that makes sense, I think. But in retrospect, I, I don't think I would have. Um, I like to. Th I, I thought going into it that the connections through these investors would be a lot more powerful than I think they really have. And maybe that's my own fault. Maybe I haven't like pushed them enough to do stuff on my behalf. Um, I really just send an investor update email monthly, but I don't really like try to get them to like heavily push uh, push us or anything like that. Um, but. I think now, like going back, if I could do it again, I would have I would have bootstrapped from day one and only taken money when I really knew that I had product market fit, that I knew how to really acquire people reliably, like acquire leads reliably. And once I had a, a solid channel, say like a paid acquisition funnel that worked really well, then I'd try to get money so I can throw more money at that funnel um, instead of doing it early on, just to kind of keep the lights on, which is effectively what we did. So basically building up like a small, tiny fire first and then putting fuel on it instead yeah. of getting the, the cash right, right away. Exactly. Tiny fire and the right fire. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's because again, I, I, the, the parallel I always give is like, we, we built this great rocket ship. We just went in the wrong direction, you know? And I think, I think you see that unfortunately a lot where you go into a product and you really haven't, 
you've thought it through and and you're in your head about what it should how it should function who it's for and stuff but then as you start to get into it you realize that your assumptions were incorrect so course correcting is often painful and expensive how do you plan to basically to get from where you're currently at like 20k solo again to where you're where you want to go so first of all like what is that state of where you want to go and how do you as now a quite experienced entrepreneur like set the plan for yourself to get there yeah so i have a i have a um an ambitious goal which is 35,000 mrr by the end of the year which is a lot uh compared to where we are now but that that was us at our peak that's the highest we ever got to was 35,000 a month so at one point we were there um Why I want to get there is at that point, that's when I'm going to bring on another full-time developer to work with me so I can focus back on sales and marketing only. Um, and how I'm doing that is I'm, I'm kind of changing up exactly what I'm doing because the, the biggest issue we've had when it comes to demos is I give a demo and I'm like, look at all these things you can do with the right message. And the response is always like, yeah, this is cool, but it's a lot of work. Like we need to think through What pages are we going to personalize? What content are we going to change? If we do change the content, what are the different headlines we're going to use and, and so on, which takes a lot of strategy. And it's a lot of, it's a lot of effort, to be honest. So one thing that we're doing that I'm trying is I, I just brought on somebody who is working with me to basically have an agency within our product. So what we're doing now is we're saying for a flat fee, we will do everything for you. We'll do the strategy work of coming up with the segmentation strategy, getting it linked to your CRM, getting that data passed around correctly, getting copy variations set up for your key pages across your site, putting into, bit, into place A-B, A-B testing and goal tracking. And basically that's the, that's the objection that they have is like that work. So we're saying, we'll do that for you. And the benefit there is we're getting, we're selling it now for two to $3,000 a pop. Um, so we're getting a nice burst of revenue. And these are now people who are paying a few hundred a month monthly for the software. So we've been able to grow pretty aggressively over the last month since we started doing this because my call to action at the end of the demo is not like, yeah, so go sign up for trial or something like, it was always a little weak. Now it's, yep. okay, next step is we can do all this for you. Um, and, and there's ways to experiment with this that I haven't even looked into yet. Like I could do maybe discounted if they go for an annual plan or, I mean, there's things I haven't even touched, but Right now, we're pretty busy doing this. And we've had people who've wanted to use this for a while, but don't have the know-how to know how to best leverage our tool. It's kind of like if you threw in the mid-90s an email marketing platform at your average business and said, do email marketing, they'd be like, where the hell do I even begin, right? Because it was such a new concept then. And I kind of feel like we're there now. So if, if I can just say, we'll do it all for you, we get you all set up. And then that's, that's the objection. So, so far, it's been working out pretty well. Um, so my goal is keep doing a lot of these one-off, but I'm adding a few hundred in MRR at a time, along with raising a bunch of money up front. Um, and so our funnel is going to be basically funneling people to a done-for-you agency thing that we're building on top of the software. Now, th- there are things I'm worried about with that. Like, well, if we do this, if we're primary the consumers of our own software, because we're using it on behalf of our clients, our customers that's going to potentially affect the product. Maybe the onboarding won't be as good long-term because we're the ones using it a lot of the time, right? At least initial, initially. So there's things to think through, but I think for right now, this is the right move to make for getting us to that 
growth goal that I have given our limited resources? I think it's very smart because especially if you look at enterprise says selling a professional services package is basically the default or like very standard. Yes. And then basically you get free cash flow. Sure, you, you have the, the cost of fulfilling the thing, but I, I think of course like you, you, you pull a profit from that and then you get people properly onboarded. And also I think once you paid like two, three K for you're onboarding, yeah. do, you're not going to cancel. Do you really yeah. switch like two months after two months? No way. Yeah. 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 You're not going to cancel a month one because you're already in it for $2,000 yeah. or something. Yeah. 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 I think that's, I think that's super smart, but, but you mentioned that you might be like the main consumer, so to say, on, on your own tech then. So is it basically that they don't even interface with with your software or like how would. how do you man how do you manage that that balance right now? Yeah, so I think we're not sure yet. We haven't had anyone who said, "Can you maintain it forever?" Most of the time, it's set up and then they get into it. Um, so that's been okay because we do have a lot of documentation and it's really a well designed product overall. It's just I'm worried about that blank slate for somebody who doesn't do the done for you. They go in and it's blank. Like, will we start to ignore that? You know, um, because we're giving them, we're basically seeding the account with data is kind of what they're paying us to do. Um, so for somebody who comes in and doesn't do that, my, the question I'm trying to tackle right now is, do we just make it so everyone needs to go through this flow? And I've seen this before. I think like HubSpot, you can't even sign up without a setup fee where they basically do this for you. Um, and maybe, maybe that's the answer here. I don't really like it because I, when I buy software, I like demos. I like trials. I, I don't like... I don't like demos. I like trials. I like self-serve. Just yeah. go in. I don't want to talk to anyone. Like, but then I, I'm increasingly realizing like the way I buy software isn't the way that my ideal customer buys software. Um, so yeah, that's just something that I think it, it's, it's, I, I'm my own worst enemy in that sense. Like I want a product where I can just go in, don't talk to anyone and screw around. But am I the buyer of it? Yeah. I, I would love to put my finger on that because I had a very similar realization literally a week ago because like we I, I run an agency as well under the early umbrella and and we never did any outbound so it was literally all inbound because i just knew when i used other services agencies it was always like a friend of a friend someone who knew or i put like an ask in like a slack community and if i get a cold email it's like an auto delete yeah but yep. then a, a more experienced founder i know just like pushed me hey just try it. Like, even though you don't feel like you're a sales guy, just go for it. And I did it and it works. Like, it, like without, like, we're three weeks in, already appointment set up, and I would have bet everything against that because I just know my own behavior. Yeah. But I think that's such, like, for me, that was, like, one of the biggest learnings of the last literally two weeks. Like, to not always assume that everyone else acts like me, even though it helps to be in the same industry and to have the ability to think like your customer, I think that's, that's a major thing. Absolutely. And that's, that's, the, that's exactly where I am now. I'm, I'm you, but like two weeks ago. <laughs> where I'm like, I hate being on the receiving end of these cold outreach emails because they're all really horribly written, it seems. Yeah. But a lot of people are doing it, which means it probably works. Um, and I've only ever done inbound. Like all the only customers I have came from like, getting to our site, joining the email list, and then, you know, getting a demo or signing up for trial. Like I've never done outbound, but I know, you know, we integrate with apps like HubSpot. It'd be great to, there's tools where I can say, 
email people who use HubSpot. I mean, if they're already, if they're paying HubSpot, they can afford us, <laughs> like, you know, yep. so, like uh, that, that is my next step. I just haven't even gone down that rabbit hole yet. That's so interesting. Um, I would love to get out one more question before we wrap up because we're coming close to our time. I think it's very unique for someone to be basically a prolific creator to say it that way. So what things were you able, like what skills or maybe habits were you able to take from being a creator to being a SaaS founder? Yeah, great question. I think the, um, I think a big thing is because as a creator, so my, my, my story is agency owner where you never had a buy now button. It was always proposals and meetings and stuff to being a creator where people buy, say, an online course through a sales page. I think that like learning how to do the whole like lead generation, nurturing, bringing them back to the site to buy, all that kind of thing was really helpful. The copywriting aspect, especially, um, was, was really helpful. What hasn't translated, I found, and this is consistent with other friends of mine in SaaS who are, have a similar backstory, is with, with kind of like selling digital courses or whatever, you can usually use urgency really well, like buy this week, you get a discount or buy this week, whatever. Like anytime I've tried to do the equivalent kind of campaigns with right message, it's failed. And um, so I'm realizing like with SaaS, it's much more of a slow game where people are not going to impulse bite. Usually it's not going to be like a, like, okay, you convinced me in this time limited email. Like it's usually going to be a longer, longer buying cycle, at least for my kind of product. Um, and I, I think I'm, I'm okay with that now because I'm, I'm learning that I can compound the email marketing automation stuff that I learned really well with being a creator and apply this kind of the same things here about like just playing the long game and like getting people on our list through a lead magnet over time, delivering really good value in content and stuff to them. And then you know, six months later, then they decide to become a, you know, I'm a customer. That's fine. Um, especially if those systems are in place. So I think that's the big thing. It's just that kind of, because again, when you're doing everything high touch where you're an agency owner, my only experience was like, okay, we have a lead. I'm going to talk to them one-on-one. Like it was never, it was never like an automated thing, right? It was always uh, higher touch and, and, and so on, which again, worked really well, but I'm trying to find that middle ground, I think now with, with SaaS where I'm trying to do high touch, but I also want to have a backbone of automated campaigns yeah. that are delivering really good nurturing and stuff. Brennan, thanks a ton for taking the time today and for coming on. Yeah, this has been great. It's been a lot of fun. If you like this episode, then you'll love the SaaS Operator, a weekly newsletter brought to you by Early Node with actionable insights from SaaS experts in the industry delivered right to your inbox every Tuesday for free. Visit earlynode.com to subscribe.